0: Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Well, by way of a pre-sermon this morning, I had, <clears throat> the Lord had laid something on my heart to share, and then I was reluctant to share it, thought maybe, boy, I don't want to talk for too long and everything, and as, as Brother Cal exhorted us this morning from Psalm 3, um, he said some things that, that compelled me to think this would be relevant and helpful, and Brother Cal said something to the effect of that those who who are despairing, that God would lead them to those of us who would have testimony to comfort them, testimony to encourage them. Um, I believe most of us are aware at this point that Brother Tony has been writing a book this last year, Um, and the topic of the book has to do with Tony's struggles with anxiety and depression and the use of psychotropic medication. And after completing most of his first draft, he invited a few of us to, to read through it and provide some basic feedback. And it took, me a, it took me a few weeks to get through it, not because the book is long, but just because I'm that slow. And I was, I was very blessed by the read. And I, I don't mean to give spoilers about it, but <clears throat> what I was most thankful for about that book is the way that so much of it reads quite simply as a detailed and honest testimony of God's goodness. Uh, He goes back to his childhood and goes into great detail about particular sin that he has contended with virtually all of his life. And he he vividly recounts the wrestlings in his own mind as a believer, as the desires of his flesh war against the Spirit of God dwelling in him. He goes into great detail about some very dark nights of his soul, contemplating very evil thoughts. Uh, he describes his experience of shame and despair as he considered how it could be that a Christian, and not just any Christian, but, a, but a, a well-respected ministry leader could be so ensnared by inward sin and the humility that God has brought into his life through all of it. He explains many of the times and ways that the Lord has sanctified him mightily amid these struggles through watershed moments of trembling and repentance and through quieter moments of encouragement being upheld mercifully, by the Lord through his word and those around him. There's, to be sure, there's a great deal of the book spent providing excellent research and argument about the subject matter, the myth of chemical imbalance and so forth. And he, he provides a, a robust biblical framework to understand the truth about anxiety and depression and the sin that they are. And these chapters are excellent and very useful. But as I consider the book as a whole, I just kept coming back to being so impressed to simply consider the way that God uses simple, sincere testimonies of His grace in our lives to instruct and to teach. It made me think about all the books that I've read or all the books that have been written under the sun. Many, many men and women have written autobiographies, uh, books which serve to provide just kind of a firsthand account of someone's life. Uh, many people have written memoirs. One of my favorite books that I own Incidentally, it was a gift from Tony, uh, Winston Churchill's Memoirs of the Second World War. A memoir is a little different than an autobiography. It doesn't so much chronicle a person's life, but rather gives a window into what that person might have been thinking in particular times in their life. But a Christian's testimony does more than either of those things. A testimony provides an accounting of the power of God in our lives individually. Testimonies do more than inform people about our thoughts or the events of our life. They inform people about God, what he's done for us, what he's done in us and through us. Testimonies are not about us. They are about God. And it occurs to me, it occurred to me as I read that book, that testimonies are meant to be used. Uh, Tony's book could have been written as an idle account of some stuff that happened in his life. Uh, he could have left out a lot of that, that detail about what was really going on in his soul for many years. Uh, and he, he could have provided a nice, neat, well-put-together picture of a respectable theologian who did some research in an ivory tower and thought it would be good to condense all that in a book and, and share that with the world. And that kind of book might have ended up being a useful book. If it was printed on a nice enough cover, it might even find its way onto the shelf of someone's theological library without ever being read. But instead, Tony wrote a testimony, a powerful account of God's grace in his life. And then he shot it like an arrow into the eye of one of the world's idols. Autobiographies recount the events of a person's life. Memoirs recount memories about a person's life. But testimonies are weapons to be used against the kingdom of darkness. I think of Mark 5, 15 through 19, the the, the the man who was possessed by legion. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Go home and bear witness. Go home and give testimony. What has God done for you, brothers and sisters? What can you tell to your family and friends? Not just what theology can you teach them, what can you bear witness about what God has done for you? Acts 4, 17-20, when the apostles were, were first being persecuted by the Jews, so they called the apostles to them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We're, we're going to bear witness. We're going to testify to what the Lord has done, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we've heard from his lips. Well, what have you seen and heard, Christian? Not, not merely what have you read in the Bible and know abstractly to be true, though that is well and good and necessary, but what have you witnessed God do? Go ahead and talk about it. First Peter 3, 13-15, a well-known text. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Not, not just make, can you make a systematic defense for the entire Christian faith, but a reason for the hope, the actual living, breathing hope that's in you. Bear witness. Testify to what the Lord has done for you. Explain why hope lives in you. There are certainly times, many times, to talk about the big picture of who God is. There are times to defend the faith systematically. And of course, we never hang the faith on the subjectivity of our own experience. But I believe there are many situations in life where the most powerful and useful thing that I could say would be to simply give testimony to what the Lord has done in my life in some particular way. I believe that anyone who reads Tony's book with even the smallest modicum of willingness to have their mind changed they're going to see the power of God and the truth of God's Word displayed and pressed upon them by simply reading Tony's testimony. And I believe that there are readers who will have their minds changed well before they get to the scholarly parts of Tony's book, as good as they are. And all because I'm convinced God uses the testimonies of His people. It makes me think about, I've I've talked to numerous young men about the dangers of video game addiction, for example. Um, And I can bring the Bible to bear in those conversations. I can speak generally and truthfully about what God says about idolatry and slothfulness. And that is well and good and necessary. But it also seems to me some of the most compelling things I've been able to say to those young men comes from giving testimony to the effects of that idolatry in my own life and the goodness of God in delivering me personally. Shouldn't I put that testimony to use as a weapon? I am sometimes afraid, maybe you can relate to this, I am sometimes afraid to share testimonies from my own life because it's embarrassing to talk about past sins. Uh, It requires humility to speak of ourselves in a not-so-favorable light, and I don't really like it. Um, I would rather have you all think that I am a pious, independently, innately righteous super-Christian Rather than let you know just how much the Lord has had to do for me. How much he continues to do for me. And I pray you can relate to that. I know Brother Tony can. I've read his book. And think about that. What am I really? What, what is my reputation really? What is worth being known for if not the grace of God that he has poured out on me? What dignity would any of us try to maintain for ourselves by being silent about what the Lord has done for us. When a situation presents itself in which giving a personal testimony could be profoundly useful in giving grace to the hearer, why remain silent about what God has done for you? What dignity do I possess that has not been given to me by the blood of the Lamb? And does not the Lamb deserve the glory for it? It is... Vanity and dishonesty for a Christian to pretend that he lives by anything other than the constant mediating work of Jesus Christ. And that gives us a lot to talk about, about what he's done and is doing for us. Consider this. Does he deliver you from secret sin and danger for no other reason than to shield you from open shame? Now, to his glory and to the praise of his mercy, he absolutely does save us from open shame. So much secret sin is concealed that if it was out in the open, if the Lord allowed us to see everything of one another, no one would come. He certainly shields us from open shame. But does it follow that we should then live our lives emanating some false sense of piety? As if vile thoughts and deeds done in secret and forgiven in private are somehow of no consequence to his glory or the testimony of the goodness of God in your life? Does he not deliver us from sin and danger for his glory that we might tell of the mighty deeds of the Lord and see others set free from sin? What sin committed in secret was not paid for in public at the cross? Does the glory of that deliverance belong to you or to Christ? Fathers, will you tell your children only of the great deeds that God has done in ancient times? Will you let them know about the parting of the Red Sea and how wonderful that was, but never tell them how God delivered you from idolatry? How he delivered you from sexual immorality? I ask you, which was the mightier deliverance for you? Which one of these great acts, the parting of the Red Sea or your salvation and your continued sanctification, Which one of those is a greater act of mercy, which more directly accounts for the hope in you? Is it not strange to think that the only reason you would know how to give for the hope that is in you is to recount stories of someone else's deliverance, but not your own? Has the Lord not delivered you? We are far more comfortable talking about the sins and deliverances of ancient Israel, which we'll talk about today, than we are about talking about our own sins. And I think that's worthy of consideration. Sometimes we need less theology in the way we want to talk and just a little more testimony. God has given each of you unique testimonies of his grace in your life. And I'm not only talking about the testimony of when he saved you, but testimonies of how you have walked with him, how he has carried you ever since he first took you from this world. Testimonies about sin he's delivered you from, testimonies about his patience with you, testimonies about his kindness toward you in every single way. Take these testimonies and use them as ammunition. Fire them right into the eye of the devil as a situation would arise. Use them as tools to help pry captives free from sin when you see it. Be looking for ways to weaponize your testimony. Would be my exhortation to you. We'll turn now to our text for today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 13, and I'm going to pray as we begin. Uh, But let us read the word of the Lord first. Please turn to Luke 13. And I will begin reading at chapter 30. I'm sorry, excuse me, at verse 31. Please stand with me. Luke 13, beginning at verse 31. Hear the word of the Lord. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow, And the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word now, Father, may you illuminate it to us. Father, may you may you speak to us, your people. Father, no one here has any need to hear from me, but it is our desperate need to hear from you, the living God. Father, be with us now and May my words represent you rightly, that you may be glorified. May ears be opened to hear, may eyes be opened to see the wonders of the risen Christ. Pray this in his name. Amen. Well, as we as we begin looking at our text this morning, I think it's appropriate to uh, take a moment to zoom out and take ourselves back to the really big picture concerning people of Israel. The first 75% or so of your Bible is a collection of books that we call the Old Testament. Uh, These books may be understood to a large degree as containing the record of all God's dealings with a particular special group of people, the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the nation of Israel, which we would later come to know simply as the Jews. This people was chosen by God, taken as a special covenant people whom God set his love upon above all the nations of the earth. Following the great flood and later the Tower of Babel, all the peoples and nations of the earth would descend into various forms of depraved paganism. But to the people of Israel, God revealed himself by special revelation. He gave them the scriptures through the prophets. He manifested his power by visible, miraculous, often dreadful acts. Some of the Gentiles in ancient times would would kind of feel their way toward God, as Paul later describes it. But for the most part, all the other peoples of the earth dwelt in utter darkness. But not Israel. They were chosen and special. Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God made great promises to Israel. He delivered them from slavery. He gave them his law. He gave them his very presence to dwell among them. He gave them a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that they did not cultivate, but inherited through God's judgment against pagan nations. He fought for them. He protected them. He routed their enemies before them. He increased their prosperity. He was their God and they were his people. In his covenant with them, he promised blessings to them for obedience and curses for disobedience. And when they strayed to every manner of vile sin and idolatry, when he could have made a righteous end to them by the terms of his own covenant, he instead showed mercy to them. Again and again he delivered them. He chastised them. Though they would dive headlong into every despicable sin that can be imagined, imagined, at every turn he showed himself willing to show mercy. Though he would have been well within his rights to cast them out for their wickedness, he saved them again and again. He delivered them for the sake of his great name. One could say that about 75% of the Bible is devoted to the history of God's mercy toward this people. Well, one might expect that in the end, such unyielding love from God would cause Israel to repent and remain faithful, right? But they did not. They murdered the prophets. They rebelled against his law. They hated him. They turned to every vile thing, just like the Gentile nations. In fact, they even invented new ways of wickedness that the Gentiles had never conceived of. And yet God continued to show mercy? He preserved this people. The Old Testament is the recounting of God's incredible undeserved mercy. It is a history of a people who deserve great judgment, but whose judgment is constantly deferred because God shows compassion and pity upon his covenant people, patiently forbearing until that time when he would send Christ the Son of God, into the world. Through His prophets to this people, God made great promises about a coming Redeemer, a man who would descend from David, a lion from the tribe of Judah, a prophet like Moses to whom the people must listen, the true Noah who would give final rest and deliverance from the curse. This would be the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Deliverer, That the Jews were to be looking for the Emmanuel, God with us, who would come and decisively save his people from all distress. From the power of the devil, from the power of sin, the true slavery that has held men captive and consigned us all to death since our first father, Adam. And now here in this Gospel of Luke, the promised Messiah has come. And he walks among them. The light of the world has entered. The Redeemer has come. Surely the Jews will see it. But they missed him. And not only did they miss him, but they despised, rejected, hated, and ultimately murdered him just like they did to the prophets. We just sang the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Have you ever considered the tragic implications laced into that song. When Christ appeared, he came first to his own, the Jews, the very ones who were supposed to have been longing for him. But his own knew him not. They did not receive him. Ransom, captive Israel, they cried. And yet when he came, they had no interest in being ransomed. And because his own did not receive him when he came to save them, Jesus prophesied of yet another coming. Not the final coming where Jesus will appear at the end of time to usher in the new creation. That's the second coming that we still wait for, but a different coming, which is alluded to in this text, the imminent coming of the Lord in which his wrath would fall upon Jerusalem. The great mercy of God, which had sustained the Jews all these many years, the great forbearance of the Lord to continue to long suffer their rebellion and law-breaking would now shortly come to an end. Because of their rejection and murder of the Son of Man, the Lord would now reject and destroy Jerusalem. Just as the Lord had previously prophesied through Isaiah, Isaiah 65, verse 2, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. In verse 6, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both their iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. The significance of the calamity that Jesus prophesies in these verses today cannot be overstated. The destruction of Jerusalem and with it the temple stands as one of the most horrific and important events in history. It has incredible implications as it pertains to understanding the mercy God has toward us, the Gentiles. And from this event, the Lord gives grave lessons and warnings for the church, which are to echo down through the ages, which I would hope to have us consider today. If you are a note taker, I want to frame our survey of this text this morning by observing four things concerning the Lord Jesus and His dealings with the Jews. First, we see Jesus' indignation toward the Jews. Next, Jesus' compassion toward the Jews. Third, Jesus' judgment against the Jews. And finally, Jesus' redemption of the Jews with a question mark. Make sure the question mark goes at the end there, and you'll understand why. First, we see his indignation. In last week's sermon, Pastor Mike unfolded the beginning of Jesus' reply to the Pharisees. These Pharisees allegedly came to inform Jesus that he would do well to leave the area of Galilee since Herod wanted him dead. But Jesus was having none of it. Go and tell that fox, he said, a fox, a pesky hunter, a vermin. That can do no real harm, as Pastor Mike explained. Jesus had work to do. He was about his father's business and he was going to accomplish it. No puppet king who fancies himself a somebody is going to thwart the purposes of God. Jesus pulled no punches in his reply. He let the hearers know exactly how inconsequential Herod was. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. But he goes on. Verse 33. Nevertheless, he says, or regardless of Herod and how insignificant he is and the work I have to do, there are other reasons at play here as well. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. He's saying, understand, I'm not afraid of Herod. Uh, That that isn't why I'm leaving Galilee. That's not why I'm on my way somewhere else. I, I do have work to do, and I'm going to do that, of course. But we all understand that it would be completely unfitting that I should die anywhere but Jerusalem. We all know how this works. You can go and tell Herod that we all know my life is perfectly safe until I get to Jerusalem, because that's where my people kill their prophets. Jerusalem owns the market when it comes to killing prophets, and I'm not going to upset the norm. If Jesus Jesus was not displaying enough indignation when he called Herod a fox, now he's being sarcastic. And he has every right to be. For well over a thousand years, God had suffered patiently with this people. When they strayed into sin before the Lord would punish them, he would send prophets to call them to repentance. A number of them were murdered in Jerusalem. Here's an example, Second Chronicles 24. Now after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Then the king listened to them. And they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. Then the Spirit of the Lord clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says the Lord, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they conspired against him, and by command of the king... They stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus, Joash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. And when he was dying, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. Not only was this prophet murdered in Jerusalem, the king had the audacity to have him murdered right there in the temple. May the Lord see and avenge, the prophet said. Well, the Lord most certainly did see, and the Lord most certainly will avenge. And that vengeance is drawing near. Later on in the Gospels, when Jesus was in Jerusalem teaching at the temple, he once again pronounces woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees, which we read a few chapters ago in Luke. Matthew 23, starting at verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! The blood of the prophets that their fathers killed, the blood of the Son of Man whom they are about to kill, the blood of the apostles and others like Stephen who they themselves will later kill, even the very blood of Abel will be credited against them. The wickedness of these people against Jesus would so resound across time that even the blood of Abel will cry out against them. This is the people of God. This is the people whom Jesus had brought up from slavery in the house of Egypt. This is the people whom Jesus had led through the promised land. This is the people whom God had delivered time and again with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. But well does Moses say of them, Deuteronomy 9.24, You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Jesus knows this people very well. He was well acquainted with their wickedness. This people is a prophet killing people. It's what they do best. So to Jerusalem, that's where Jesus must go. The days for the mercy of Israel are ending. And the days of the Lord's wrath and indignation are soon to come upon them. But Jesus continues. Verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? Now let's stop and consider this. If you've read this text before, and even as I read it now and you follow on the page, how shall we read the inflection of the Lord's voice in this verse? Shall we read anger in His voice? Or shall we read compassion and sorrow? Well, I submit that it must be both. O Jerusalem, city that kills prophets, Woe to you, your judgment is coming. But at the very same time, O Jerusalem. How often I would have gathered you? How often I would have scooped you up in my arms? How often would I have placed you under my wings? sheltered you from storms and enemies alike, but you would not come. You were not willing. Mark these words in verse 34. How often would I and you were not willing? How often would I and you were not willing? The Lord Jesus was willing to save This people, but Israel was not willing to be saved. He is indignant over their unbelief, and at the very same time, he agonizes over their unbelief. And thus we see the compassion of Jesus toward the Jews. Even now, as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be offered up to be crucified, the compassion of the Lord is still visible. Oh, that they would have come to me! Now, upon considering this verse, <clears throat> I was tempted that I should prepare a sermon to explain, well, we've got to talk about the wills of God here. We've got to talk about the two wills. We need, to, we need to talk about how we need to understand God's prescriptive will, you know, what He commands all men to do versus His ordained will, you know, what He sovereignly ordained to take place. And, and I could really feel from this verse a need to vindicate the Lord's meaning of His words by explaining to you how it can be that He can desire people to be saved And and at the same time, only ordain a few and all that. There's a number of verses in the New Testament which really make our Calvinist blood rush to make us really want to give a good defense of God's sovereignty. And this is one of them. But I'm not going to do that this morning. Many of you really need to get back to letting the plain words of Jesus hit you in the nose. There are those among you This people here, who to this very day have rejected the Lord Jesus on the basis of notions like, well, God just hasn't given me a new heart yet. Or it must not be God's will to save me. Let's be real. That's bogus and you know it. You know it. The willingness of God to save sinners has never been the problem. The issue is that sinners are unwilling to come and be saved. How often would I? And you were not willing. Hear me. Hear the Lord Jesus. I would have you to see, Gentile, that if you have any confusion about the willingness of God to save sinners, if there was ever a time in history where God has shown himself willing to save you, a Gentile sinner... It's now. It is now. This is your time, we will see. God has caused the light of the gospel to rise up among the Gentiles, and for 2,000 years now, the trumpet call of the messengers of God has been going out to the four winds of the earth in order that all his sons and daughters from among the nations might come out and be saved. This is the season for you to come to the Lord. The gate to enter into salvation, as we've seen in Luke 13, it's a narrow gate. But it's an open gate. It is an open gate to all who are willing to come in. It is not a barricaded gate. How often would I and you were not willing? Don't play games with the sovereignty of God about his willingness to save? He is not impressed, and you are not cute. Will you seriously plan to stand before the Lord and tell him, Lord, I was willing, but you were not? Will you say to him on the basis of today's passage, you know, you got just a little more Bible in you, right, where you can read, Lord, I know that you at one time in your word conveyed a willingness to save Israel, but you never showed yourself willing to save me. Never showed himself willing, really. Did not his son bleed upon the cross for all the world to see and hear of it? Does he not even now, through my voice, plead with you to be reconciled to God? What evidence of his willingness are you waiting for exactly? What more can he say than to you he hath said? In what way has he stuttered when you have heard him command all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel? In what ways has Jesus shown himself insincere when he said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out? God will not be mocked by silly mind games about his sovereignty. You are way out of your depth if you think you can recite half-truths About God's sovereignty as an excuse when you stand before Him on the last day. Truths that you don't even understand. I beg you, don't go there. The Lord is more than able to correct your theology about His willingness to save on that day when He consigns you to hell for your willful unbelief. Hear the word of the Lord. God pleaded with Israel. He pleaded with Israel through the prophets for centuries that they would turn from their wickedness and be saved. And he's still pleading with sinners today, if you would have ears to hear. Listen to the prophets. Ezekiel 33. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus have you said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? They understand that they're sinners, but what can we do about it? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Why will you die, unbeliever? 2 Chronicles 36. This is a summary of the Lord's dealings with the kingdom of Judah leading up to the Babylonian exile. This is, it's like a summary at the end of Chronicles explaining, condensing everything that God has done these hundreds of years. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his word and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people and there was no remedy. Be very careful about creating theologies that would strip God of his compassion. Well, we just read in Chronicles there is God's compassion extended toward those who don't fear him. I think of Psalm 103 where, where it says that as a, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. This is true. He has compassion on those who don't fear him. Do you not see it? In Matthew 5, Jesus says of the Father, He makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, rain upon the just and the unjust. Sounds like compassion to everybody to me. His compassion is not only on those who fear Him. His compassion is on sinners who He would have repent and come. In fact, if you want to try to limit the compassion of God only to those who fear Him, let us not forget that the greatest scandal in creation... Is that Adam's race, whom God made, whom he pours out confession and goodness on every day? They don't respond to his compassion. That's the reason for judgment, everybody. We are wicked, and he is kind, and we receive not his kindness, but we thumb our nose at him and go on in our vile ways. The Lord is a compassionate God. Make no mistake. How often would I, and you were not willing. Another proof I would submit to you that we ought to read compassion in the voice of Jesus here is to consider the weeping of Jesus. There are two places in the Gospels where we observe Jesus weeping. The first is when he came to Mary and Martha after Lazarus had died in John chapter 11. The second is when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem drawing near to the city during his triumphal entry. Luke 19, verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you, And hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. He sees the city and he weeps. O Jerusalem, would that you had turned and repented. If only you would see your Messiah and turn and be saved. But now it's too late. The Lord has hardened their hearts, he has closed their eyes, and judgments are pronounced. In speaking of enemies surrounding the city with barricades in this text, Jesus gives a prophecy that would be unmistakably fulfilled in history during the siege of Jerusalem some 40 years later when the Roman general Titus would besiege Jerusalem. And how did he besiege it? He built a wall around the city. To enclose them. And the Jews would go on to suffer horrifically by famine and by the sword. The sword from without and the sword from within as they slaughtered each other looking for food. And ultimately the city would be reduced to the ground. This destruction is alluded to by Jesus in verse 35 of our text this morning. Back to Luke 13, we see the judgment against the Jews. Behold, your house is forsaken. Forsaken. The King James renders it, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Desolate. Eremos, solitary, uninhabited, a desert, a wilderness, deserted, deprived of aid and protection the once great people of israel protected and blessed by amazing covenant mercy upheld in power by almighty god since the days of their father abraham would now find themselves abandoned by god their temple would be destroyed and with it the entire old covenant system of worship which they tried and to this day try to so vainly hold on to even after christ's death and resurrection it's gone The Jewish people as a whole, except for the elect among them, were now judicially consigned to hardness of heart. The city would be stripped of its divine protection. The favor of the Lord would depart. And just as the Jews would trample underfoot the blood of Jesus, so now Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. This is the judgment of Jesus. Jesus would later explain to his disciples more about when these things would take place. Luke 21, starting at verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant And for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The Jewish historian and general Josephus. I'm not going to go too far into this today, but he was an eyewitness to the siege of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He records great horrors that took place in the city at that time. But when the siege had been going on for some time after the Romans had ravaged the countryside for wood to construct their wall and their other siege engines, and when the Jews in the city were starving and tens of thousands lay dead around the city, thrown over the walls, they ran out of the strength and the place to bury them, Josephus records this description as he looked on the city. And truly the very view itself of the country was a melancholy thing. For those places which were before adorned with trees and pleasant gardens were now become a desolate country every way. And its trees were all cut down. Nor could any foreigner that had formerly seen Judea in the most beautiful suburbs of the city and now saw it as a desert, but lament and mourn sadly. That's so great a change, for the war had laid all the signs of beauty quite waste. Desolation. Josephus records this concerning Titus, the Roman general. When Titus, in going rounds along these valleys, saw them full of dead bodies, and the thick putrefaction running about them, he gave a groan. And spreading out his hands to heaven, called God to witness. This was not his doing. And he was right. It was the judgment of Jesus that brought this calamity. Now, it would not be fitting for us to spend more time this morning going into great detail about the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus will speak about these things later on in other chapters of Luke, and I'm, I'm sure we'll hear more about that as we continue in the book. But we do need to linger here a bit longer to think about what the culmination of Israel's judgment means for us. The purpose of this text and the stories I just shared is not for us Gentiles to sit back and think about how bad the Jews were. Don't go there. Your great need now is to consider your own place in the matter. What would God have you to see as you consider these things? Let's remember where we are at in redemptive history now Remember that as the gospel spread in the book of Acts, the Jews at large grew increasingly resistant to the gospel. And in the process, the gospel door to the Gentiles was flung open wider and wider by the Lord. This is, uh, this is condensed most well, I think, or captured by Paul in, uh, in Acts 13, where he's preaching at Antioch in Pisidia. Acts 13, beginning at verse 44 the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, you Jews. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. The gospel has continued to spread among the Gentiles now for 2,000 years. All the way down to you. The Jews as a people group, as far as they could even today be recognized as a people group, have continued to reject Jesus to this day, largely. Paul speaks in Romans 11 uh, of the church as having been grafted into the promises of God. We don't have time to unpack this fully today, but I, I believe it's important to spend some time here as Gentiles understanding Luke 13. Speaking about the unbelief of the Jews, Paul writes this, Romans 11, beginning at verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. So at the time Paul was writing this, persecution of Christians among the Jews was so bad that one could reasonably have asked him the question, Paul, I I thought the Jews were God's special covenant people, and yet it looks to me like every last one of them is an enemy of God. Paul acknowledges this, but he makes it clear that God has kept for himself a remnant, although the rest were hardened. And I want to pause on that again. Hardened. Don't overlook that. Because of their unbelief, God gave Israel over to a particular hardness of heart. So as not to be able to perceive the gospel, he closed their eyes and their ears so that hearing they would not hear and seeing they would not see. That was his judgment, and it is a frightening thought to be hardened by the living God. Skipping down to verse 13 in Romans 11. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Hey, by the way, that's us, okay? So listen up. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, well, what does that mean? He means that the Jews' rejection of the gospel has actually served to advance the gospel to us Gentiles, to us. So, in a very real way, we have benefited from the unbelief of the Jews. That's a marvelous and frightening thought that we would benefit from the unbelief of someone else. That's a high thought. And here we come to the meat of the matter in Romans 11, though I would have you consider. But if some of the branches were broken off, that is, the unbelieving Jews, and you, although a wild olive shoot, that's us Gentile, Christians, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing roots of the olive tree, do not be arrogant. The branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Dear Christian, when you behold the horrible mystery of Israel's destruction, God would have you to fear. Don't be so arrogant as to think it couldn't happen to you. Verse 22 Paul continues, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. There is a warning for the saints. Don't you dare look down on the Jews. Mind your own life. Don't fall in unbelief like Israel did don't turn aside to sin like Israel did, fear the living God. Now we believe in the perseverance of the saints, amen? We believe that if God has saved a person, then they cannot and will not lose their salvation. God will complete His work in them until the day of redemption. No one that belongs to the Father can be snatched from His hand. And this truth absolutely governs and moderates our understanding of what Paul is saying here. But let the text hit you in the nose, dear people. Oh, how we must fear, lest we delude ourselves to think that we are secure when we are not. There is a kind of person who has been grafted onto the olive tree. They've made a profession of faith. They've they've been joined visibly to the new covenant through a confession and baptism. And yet they bear no fruit. The tree doesn't actually nourish them. By outward appearance, they look to be connected to the tree, but they aren't bearing any fruit. They'll be cut off. Jesus gave a parable in Matthew 21 that is extremely relevant here. Matthew 21, verse 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard And put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first and they did the same to them. Does that sound familiar? The Lord sent prophet after prophet to Israel. Verse 37. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have the inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Jesus asked to the people. And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? In other words, do you not realize I'm talking about you? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in your eyes. And then he finishes the parable by saying this. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. The kingdom of God, the the promises of that great covenant of grace in which God's people stand through faith, was taken from Israel. It was instead, as it were, given over to the Gentiles. Israel didn't bear fruit, so God cut them off. Now the gospel flourishes among the Gentiles, Whom God is grafting in one by one. But let me ask you, are you producing its fruits? He said, The kingdom of God will be taken away from you, Israel, and given to a people producing its fruits. Are you producing its fruits? Am I producing its fruits? He didn't give us the kingdom so that we could just do the same thing Israel did. Are we producing its fruits? Is the fruit of the Spirit manifesting in your life? And not simply through inward sentiments that you might have about God, but through outward deeds of righteousness that manifest saving faith. Are you putting off the flesh? Putting on the Lord Jesus? Or are you consumed by sin? You're, you're grafted to the tree. You're, somebody, somebody took that branch and, and it's up there on the tree and we've got, got some duct tape wrapped around it. It's on the tree. But are you producing its fruits? Take heed lest you fall. Israel fell and you can too. Be warned. Fear, O people of God. Before destruction fell upon Jerusalem, the unbelieving Jews, they're just going about their lives. They're buying and selling. They're uh, grinding grain at their mills. Mothers were nursing. Everyone was just going about Life is normal. They worshipped in the temple. They uh, They were enjoying the fruits of the promised land. But then swiftly, the Romans fell upon them, and hundreds of thousands perished in a few months. How many of them do you suppose thought themselves to be at peace with God? Be warned, O people of God. Let us return to verse 35 in our text this morning as we close. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? Well, here at the end of our time, we cannot deal with that verse exhaustively, but I will give you the possible senses of it to to take away. Some believe that Jesus, when he said, You will not say, see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, some believe that that merely refers to the triumphal entry in Jerusalem, where Jesus will be greeted by shouts of praise and the waving of palm branches. Palm Sunday, we call it. But most commentators agree that this view doesn't make a lot of sense if you really look at it. Uh, for one, in the, in the parallel passage in Matthew, where Jesus says the same thing concerning Jerusalem, the triumphal entry had already occurred, and he was in Jerusalem when he said it. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and then seconds if that's all he meant, it would basically be like Jesus is saying, well, Jerusalem, you won't see me until I get there. There's not really a lot, of, not really a lot being said in that, so I, I would not hold that view. Some believe that Jesus here refers to the coming of destruction of Jerusalem. As if to say that when the wrath of Jesus comes upon the Jews, Jesus will, as it were, be glorified by it. And that, in a sense, he will receive blessing from them as he pours out his wrath on them. Some believe it refers simply to the second coming, where all of God's people, Jew and Gentile, will bless the name of Jesus as he gathers us all unto himself to rule and reign in a new creation with a new Jerusalem. That would certainly be a time where Jerusalem will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and we know, too, at the end, when Christ returns, even unbelievers will be forced to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. I think, I think these views have merit, especially that one. Uh, but there's another view that I think has ample historical weight, which I'm going to put forward for consideration as we close. In verse 35, I would lean toward the understanding that we see a glimpse of Jesus' future redemption of the Jews. With a question mark in your outline. Returning to Romans 11, starting at verse 23. And even they, the Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? They, the Jews, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy." For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. I'm just going to leave that there. But a few thoughts. Could it be that before the end of history, God will accomplish a great awakening among the Jews? Could it be that here in time, ungodliness truly will be banished from Jacob, as the prophet said, in a visible way, when a great many Jews, not all of them, the elect would repent and come to the Christ that their fathers rejected? Could it be that just as God has opened wide the door of salvation to us Gentiles in order that his elect from among the nations might be gathered to Christ, so too he will one day lift the hardening veil that hangs over the minds of the house of Israel and a massive remnant of the elect from among the Jews will come to Christ? In other words, could it be that one day before the end of the age Israel will fulfill the prophecy of Jesus by saying and meaning it, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who knows? Hence, I leave you with a question mark. We know for sure that all of God's elect, both Jew and Gentile, will be gathered to Christ. We know that there is nothing different about how a Jew is saved and how a Gentile is saved. Nothing at all. It is only through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. There is not one salvation for the Jew and another salvation for the Gentile, as some heretically teach. The new covenant joins Jew and Gentile together as one through Christ, and there is no partiality. Nevertheless, speaking for myself, I cannot help but think, as I read the scriptures, especially that passage in Romans 11, that it would be just like our God to have mercy upon the house of Jacob in a special way one more time. Before the close of history with a visible great awakening among the Jews, which would stand as the final beautiful capstone, the cherry on top, the last encore of redemptive history, God's final flex of his redemptive power. When after the majority of the Gentile elect have been gathered in across history, we then see many sons of Abraham, according to the flesh, born again as sons of Abraham according to faith. And how glorious would that be? It would be glorious, that's all I know. And how great would would be our rejoicing in that day if God were to do that work. And I'll leave it at that. But as for you, dear Christian, remember the Lord's judgment against Israel and fear. Don't presume that you can't be cut off just like they were. Your house too can be left desolate if you should turn aside to sin. And the desolation that comes upon those who perish in unbelief is far more than a ruined city. It is an eternal desolation, and we cannot afford to forget that. This instruction is for the church. This instruction is for the people of God that are called to fear. Stand fast by faith in Christ and by abiding in Him. Bear the fruit of the kingdom that we have been given. We're going to sing in a moment. It's a really great time to start with the fruit of joy and singing. As we would remember God's great mercy and kindness toward us, lowly Gentiles. He could have left us in darkness, everyone. He could have left us in darkness. uh, But instead, upon us has dawned the great light of the glory of Jesus Christ. And we should never cease to marvel at it. He became desolate for our sake that we might never become desolate. He who was lifted up on the cross said, My my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me desolate? He was made desolate so that we might be gathered in. Praise this God and His Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are so good. Your mercy is beyond measure your mercy upon sinners, your forbearance and patience. Oh, Lord, what more can be said? Let no, let no soul look upon your scriptures and think this is the story of a, of a big brute, of a God who, always ready to destroy and maim and consign to hell, Oh God, you are merciful toward Adam's race. Oh God, you are merciful. Judgment we righteously deserve, for you are just. But you you defer it even in this moment for those who do not believe. Your compassion and kindness beyond question. Your indignation, righteous and deserved, and your judgment on all sin. Righteous, and we say amen to it. And we say amen as grateful, grateful branches that have been grafted in. We stand by faith and by your good grace alone. We are nothing, we have nothing, desolate and left in darkness, but that the King of heaven came and rescued us. In his name we pray, amen.